Hello, my name is John Hendren, and you're listening to BachCast. This is episode uh, number 32, and in this episode, we're looking at a concerto by Antonio Vivaldi. Why Vivaldi? Uh, this is from his Opus 3, Lestro Armonico. Uh, it's a concerto for violin in A minor, and it got the attention of a certain Johann Sebastian Bach, who we know... Uh, liked to rearrange works. That's part of uh, the bed, and blah, not the bed, the bread and butter of a composer is to repurpose things, right? And so Bach, as we used the example, I believe in our last episode, uh, I referenced in the show notes, he ta- he writes this concerto that he sends off as a job interview, number four of the Brandenburg series, and he repurposes that. He rewrites it for harpsichord with two recorders, basically uh, replacing the violin solo with a harpsichord solo. Uh, and in so doing, rearranges it. He actually has to transpose the key, so it's not like uh, it was just a simple one part in, one part out. He had to rewrite the whole thing. And that uh, was, of course, um, we believe was to be pragmatic and reuse some previously written things and uh come up with a pragmatic solution. In this case, I think pragmatism is also uh, at the core of what he's doing because Bach takes this concerto by Vivaldi. It's not the only one, by the way. Uh, It's very uh, possible that he had the entire Opus 3 collection. It was published in Amsterdam and was widely circulated. It really was the uh, collection by Vivaldi that put him on the map it was popular, it was stylish, and you, you have to imagine that that Italian style had some cachet in box world in, uh, around Leipzig, and so he uh, rearranges this. I actually don't know if he was in Leipzig when he arranged this. Uh, of course, Bach did, did not start in Leipzig. He ends up there uh, around 1723 and remains there for... Uh, the remainder of his career until he dies in 1750. And so why would he be rearranging somebody else's works? Well, we know that Bach had a library of music. Uh, There's a really interesting recording by um, La Fenice, and I believe it's on the Opus uh, 111 label. uh, It's called Ex Libris, and it's basically music performed out of the Bach library that he kept of other composers' work. So he's got things by Frescobaldi, he's got uh, Vivaldi, and he uh, rearranges this for the organ. Now, if you think back several episodes, we looked at BWV 971, his own Italian concerto, where he uh, is basically using the harpsichord as an orchestral instrument. He's doing a kind of re-piano effect with strings, and then he uh, has a solo part that emerges out of that, and we're going back between full ensemble solo, and he's doing it with two two hands. And the one technique that you have available on a, a nice harpsichord, one with two keyboards, is that you can alter the voice of one of the keyboards. Right, you can make it weaker sounding. You can you can uh, perhaps double um, multiple sets of strings to make it more brilliant. Uh, you can employ specialty st- stops so that you get a a, um, a plucked effect rather than the normal sounding effect. We call that the lute stop. 
there's some effects that you can do on the harpsichord. And you've you got to imagine over time people said, hey, what else can we do? And by the time we get to Bach, where the harpsichord is probably on its way out the door because now we have the new inventions of the pianoforte coming in, uh, people are probably, you know, kind of done with the instruments. Like it's run its course. People have come up with uh, ideas on how to change it to make it different or better. And there's been these regional specialties. Certainly if you look at recordings, uh, if we get a really good recording that has notes in it, which is always interesting, we we might see who built the harpsichord or, or who who built the the harpsichord and what original was it based on? Was it an Italian? Was it German? Was it French? Was it Flemish? And there are a number of recordings out there, for instance, of harpsichords that were built in the 1600s and then were sort of refitted, redone, uh, added to, made more grand, especially in the French style we see uh, in 1750s, 60s, we see these, these, these redos of old instruments with to make them better, to improve them, if you will. And so there is this sort of desire to sort of get more out of the instrument. It's interesting that Bach turns to the organ here because I don't know what the uh, practical uh, application of this would have been. If we think of church music, we think of Vivaldi's violin concertos, it doesn't necessarily fit. Um, so much of Bach's organ music is based on uh, religious, the canon of religious literature, right? So if he writes variations on something, it's usually a, uh, a hymn melody or it's it's something that's, we go back and there's a text to it and there's a history to it. So that when you're in the church listening to it, it has a context and that context has a history behind it. And so it's not unusual for Bach to take these melodies that were uh, not from his pen, but were part of the canon of church literature and weave them into a new composition. I wouldn't necessarily call that arrangement because, but it, it's sort of that, right? It's taking other material and and repurposing it. So it's not an unusual concept for somebody like Bach to do this. I think the pragmatic part of this is, which folks point out, is that it may have been an instructional uh, thing for Bach to really, you know, how do you learn to write an Italian-esque uh, type concerto than to actually deal with it, actually go in there and rewrite it and figure out how that all works. Uh, I'm not going to get into what Bach changed. Uh, that th There's not a significant amount that's changed. What I want you to listen for in this one, uh, I've got a number of recordings that take this, um, this concerto and perform it on, on organ. And what for me is interesting is that Bach has taken something written for strings and made it for an instrument that probably, one of the reasons you might consider this, uh, again, I'm not the expert, I don't know for sure, but if you looked at the harpsichord as sort of a limited thing that people were looking at how to improve, the organ by default is, is sort of a uh, more capable instrument when it comes to trying to uh, mimic the dynamics of a string orchestra and a soloist. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, there are organs of all different capabilities, but you you got to believe that in Bach's time, he probably had access to some of the better organs that had tons of stops, right? So the stops on an organ are basically all those those levers, if you will, those push, push and pull um, devices around the keyboard that basically 
will turn off or turn on different sets of pipes to get different volume, to get different color, to get different, uh, and you mix these up to get different combinations of sound. And on the bigger organs, you had multiple keyboards and you could assign the keyboards to certain uh, combinations. Therefore, if you think of a two manual, a two keyboard harpsichord, you basically had the light version and you had the heavy version. Uh, in the organ, that could be multiplied out to have different combinations. Uh, and if you if you don't understand this or you haven't you don't know what I'm talking about, and it sounds like I'm speaking Greek all of a sudden, check out some of Bach's organ works on YouTube. Uh, for me, it's a, f you know, watching performers perform is a real treat. And that's why I have written about that I think the evolution of uh, recording uh, technology is, is going to want to embrace video. Uh, I really like what they're doing out of the Netherlands the Olive Bach uh, project. If you haven't checked it out, it's it's an amazing uh, venture where they are attempting to record the works of Bach, and they come out with one each week. And it is fascinating to me because you can see the performance, you can see the performers, and that does positive and negative things. All I'm saying here is uh, check out some videos on YouTube of people playing Bach's work on the organ. Uh, and frankly, it doesn't even have to be Bach. It could be any organist playing an organ to get a sense of what the organ is like. Um, I had the fortune growing up to uh, be involved in church music and have the opportunity to play an organ uh, multiple times and to really to learn how to coordinate not only your hands but also your feet, which was uh, not an easy task for somebody who was not used to it. So you you certainly gain an appreciation for not only are, are people moving their hands on two different levels perhaps playing the organ, but now all of a sudden they have feet they're worried about too. And of course Bach uh, wrote some very challenging parts for the for the feet in addition to the hands on the organ. So he has that available, right? This bass, and then he has kind of a free hand he could do some other things with to fill out texture. Uh, we can't forget that, yes, on an organ you have another, uh, another it's like you're an octopus. You have another set of uh, tentacles to use, which gives you another tool. So that's part of this as well. I think Bach likely chose the organ, maybe not because he had a need for playing a concerto in the church, but that the organ lent itself to be a very capable instrument for reproducing the complexity in a violin concerto. I also think it uh, was probably one of the instruments that Bach was most familiar with, and so it was sort of his uh, playground, if you will, um, and his abilities to do that. You may also consider, was it written for the church organ or were there other instruments that Bach had available to him? We do know that there is as talk of a pedal harpsichord that would be a harpsichord with pedals, uh, and that could have been uh, another uh, tool at his disposal. With that said, uh, when you look up and you search for recordings for these concertos, um, that Bach has transcribed. I'm doing one today, which is BWV 593. It is also an A minor, just like the Vivaldi original. The thing to consider is, uh, are you looking for this on a modern uh, organ, or are you looking at it on a historical organ? There are actually differences in the sounds. Uh, um, to the lay listener, you probably aren't going to be able to tell 
unless you're really familiar with what historical organs sound like, about the differences. Um, and there are a number of great performances out there by what I would call modern organists. Uh, we're going to listen to one, Simon Preston, who's a, a British organist, who has recorded, um, he has recorded, I believe, on some historical instruments, but this release came out in 1987 uh, on the DG label, and in it he records uh, 592 through 596, a whole collection. So this is the second one in the collection of organ concertos, and you you heard when we opened this uh, episode a recording of the Vivaldi version of this concerto by um, Cafe Zimmerman. Uh, they came out with a the first release, it appears, of Vivaldi's Opus 3 um, on the Alpha label. Mm -hmm. And so now we're going to switch to Simon Preston on the modern organ performing box arrangement of Vivaldi's Concerto in A minor. <laughs> So you could hear the, the separation when we got to the solo part there. So kind of big orchestration in terms of the choice of stops there. And then it it, it, it thins out to get the solo part. And it works, works kind of nicely. Um, Mr. Preston really tries to separate, I think, the articulation on the instrument, which, which helps, especially when you're large spaced, every, not everything blurred together. Um, I don't think it's it's not written out staccato, but that is a uh, interpretive decision on his part. And the thing I want you to listen for as we listen to some different examples is how the the performers choose to sort of ornament or to articulate the solo. Uh, the solo part, if you think about a violin and a keyboard. They are, they are very different animals. They have different capabilities. And so uh, one of the things that you might hear is that an organist is trying uh, to imitate the sound of a violin, uh, to give violinistic type treatment when performing. And of course, a organ is, is probably better aligned to a wind instrument since it's using wind. Uh, and so... There are, there are techniques you can use to imitate these different instruments. Uh, you may also think, well, gee, if you arrange this for a different instrument, maybe the articulation and ornamentation should suit the new instrument, which would be the keyboard. Um, and so we will also hear an example where I think the performer is specifically going out to to basically forget that this was a violin concerto and to really make it idiomatic for a keyboard instrument. 
so keep that in mind as you listen to different performances. So uh, in terms of timing, um, this this one to me uh, was a little uh, slower than our original example that we opened uh, the, uh, the podcast with. In looking at some different recordings that I have here, uh, one comes in around four minutes, the second one comes in just over four minutes, that was 4.22. Uh, we have another one that we'll be listening to that's, that's 3.49, so about 10, 11 seconds, 12 seconds shaved off of that. And then the fastest one, uh, which I'll say for the end, is, is 3 minutes and 20 seconds. So you'll, you'll see about a minute's difference in terms of the timings between these. And again, uh, we've talked about this before in other episodes, but the timing for the, the tempo for the one we just listened to was fine, especially if you're playing a big organ in a really big church. You can't speed through it because it'll just all be smeared. And so you have to match, the t you have to be somewhat pragmatic in choosing a tempo to match the acoustic space you're in. And when we're playing with big instruments, um, like an organ in a big space where everything's echoing and reverberating around, uh, you have to be careful about that, otherwise you'll have mush. And so that's a very pragmatic thing uh, when we talk about tempo. Uh, and just so you understand when I say a minute difference, what does that mean in terms of the, that fast recording? Uh, I'm not going to give it away yet, but it's not performed on the organ. And so that makes a huge difference in being able to speed things up uh, when you don't have all those acoustical effects. So the next version we're going to listen to is by Marie-Claire Alain. She uh, was a French organist. She has recorded all the works of Bach. And this recording comes off an Arato uh, double CD that I purchased uh, many years ago. It uh, was recorded and released, uh, released at least in 1986. And just want you to hear again, uh, she's playing a modern instrument, just a different interpretation against Simon Preston. And this is again the opening of the concerto in A minor, BWV 593. So I think you could hear the big difference there, right? Um, number one, the, the registration in the organ doesn't sound as, as grand. It doesn't sound quite as the choices as big. And literally, that's something that uh, could have been done on the organ Mr. Preston used as well. So not only are we talking about different instruments, but then different choices within the instruments. And that's fine. Uh, Bach typically isn't giving us direction about which stops to pull because the complement of stops would be different on different organs. Um, there are some indications, uh, but in general with these concertos, uh, it's up to the performer to, to make those choices. It's kind of uh, like mixing your own 
specialty cocktail, uh, you've got the basic recipe, but now you're adding a few extra things to it to make it your own or to, to change things up a little bit. And that really is the performer's prerogative with this. And again, a modern organ, um, of course, this sound really wouldn't be uh, foreign to Bach, but there are certain combinations and certain stops and certain colors that might be available in a more modern organ that wouldn't have been available in Bach's time. To me, the most important thing about playing on a historic organ, which we're going to hear next, is that a historic organ has uh, likely has some differences with tuning. Um, and there may have been a, a tuning system employed in that organ that uh, makes playing in certain keys uh, sound different because of the it's not an equal temperament. And that's something to listen for when you listen to a historical organ. And it can really make certain keys stand out like, whoa, you, you kind of hear like that's a very pure chord I just heard. Or, oh, that note has a little bit of color to it because it doesn't quite jive with the way I'm used to hearing things. Uh, and so that's one of the benefits, I think, of, of using historic organs, getting some, some extra color or crunch, if you will, in, out of the, of the tuning. Um, so the big thing I want you to hear between Marie-Claire Alain and uh, Simon Preston was the, this, the, the articulation. So Preston, I noted, was putting some space between the notes probably even more than he needed to for the type of acoustical space that um, that it was recorded in because uh, you could tell it was kind of short it still worked for me it was it was nice and in this version it's all kind of smeared together right she's not playing with that that space between the notes and what happens is it kind of gets blurred um, and I don't think it is as successful a recording because of that I am very familiar with the Vivaldi piece and I am using my reference to the original to really kind of concentrate my brain on hearing all the different notes there. And it's, it gets that part right before the solo part comes where, where Vivaldi's kind of building up the tension with these chords. It's, it's all just kind of a, a blur. Uh, it's kind of like you take watercolors and you just start mixing them all. It's, it's kind of a fog, uh, which is an interesting effect. We don't know that necessarily Bach didn't like that, but uh, my idea is that if we wanted to hear the parts clearly, that, that separating the notes might have helped in her case. Um, and again, that's part of the performer, but it's also part of the space that you're recording. And of course, what you're hearing as you're playing is probably very different from when you're sitting in the, the back of the church and listening to this as well. So there is that piece of it. Um, and I'm not saying that you're not responsible for playing for the person in the back of the church either, but um, in this case, likely they were concerned about what was being picked up on the microphones. And if you heard it, I would say, hey, is there a way to get this a little clear? So that's, it was a neat recording for me, uh, the double set, because uh, I was getting, when I bought this, was getting into box organ music, and it was a nice kind of introduction to it. Uh, there's a couple items on the... Um, Recording I really like. Uh, she records the uh, the great uh, Fantasian fugue. Um, I believe it's BWV five forty two. It's a probably my favorite organ work by Bach, and I really like her performance of it. So I'm not telling you that the recording is not worth checking out, but in this particular example, it's not my favorite because I think uh, the the articulation 
uh, that we would hear very clearly in the orchestra is lost here. Um, and so that's Marie Claire Alain. Now we're going to listen to Tan Koopman. As you probably, uh, if you've listened to a few of these episodes, you know I'm a fan of his. Uh, he has uh, staked his career on being a keyboard player and conductor and director. And he took, uh, in the 90s, the, the large project of recording all of Bach's organ works. And I had the occasion to start collecting those, and then they became very hard to find. They appear on the Teldeck Das Alte Werk uh, label, which was a Warner, um, uh, a Warner company. And then they kissed... You just couldn't find them anymore. I got, I like got three editions of it, and I, I just had to stop collecting them because I couldn't find them. And I, I would search and like, are they on reissue? Where are they? And eventually, uh, a friend of mine said, "Hey, they just released. If you search hard enough, uh, they've got eleven, I believe, discs uh, of the whole collection, and it was on reissue, and I read it for a really good price. And so, to me, it was a huge bargain." There are some other organists who've also recorded the complete works. Um, Robert Herrick did a series for Hyperion. I never really got into those because it was another rendition on, he did not play on historic organs, and I wanted something to kind of, kind of counterpoint, if you will, to some of these recordings that I've collected on modern organs. I wanted a historical uh, one. And if you are following the news about what just came out, um, Mr. Koopman's... Uh, protege, if you will, uh, his student, uh, Mr. Suzuki, who is the conductor of the Bach uh, Collegium Japan, is starting his own Bach organ project and has come out with the first volume. Uh, I have listened to some samples of that, but I'm probably going to wait and see and wait for a, a large set to come out. Um, I will say that you do get burned with these big recording projects. This, the, another one that has just come out is the Haydn Project. 2032. I don't know if I can wait that long to, to wait for the thing, but basically Il Giardino Romanico and another ensemble, which I forget the name of right now, but all under um, Giovanni Antonini is going to record uh, Haydn's uh, symphonies. Um, and that sounds like a huge undertaking. Um, it was attempted once before by the Academy of Music under Hogwood and it, it died. Uh, there wasn't enough interest and money into that. And as you probably know, these big recording projects of Bach's work, um, Koopman took on the cantata project, and he ran out of funding early on and had to uh, rethink things. And eventually he finished the project on his own label um, with the Amsterdam Broke Orchestra and Choir. But I will start stop rambling about big projects and get into, again, the opening movement. I want you to hear the differences. And this is going to be on a historic organ. Um, performed by Tan Koopman.
So I hope you appreciated that Koopman takes kind of a middle ground there. He's not separating to the level that Simon Preston did, but we don't get that, what I'll call the Elaine smear. His articulation to me is just right uh, if we we're doing a Goldilocks thing. Uh, it is separated enough that things don't smear, but it is still uh, sort of a, a smoother overall style, which I think suits itself to what we would expect in a performance of the concerto by strings. The other thing that I, I hope you noticed that when Koopman goes into the solo uh, parts that he's really changing the color significantly. He's not sticking to just one color, but he's doing things that the organ adds to it, right? He's not just uh, content in reproducing uh, what was written for the orchestra, but he's saying, hey, I'm on an organ, I can do certain things, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to employ those things. So using different stops there, even just in the solo part, was kind of interesting. Uh, using two hands uh, separated rather than just playing everything on one keyboard. To me, it was really uh, a cool uh, interpretation. In terms of doing or adding what the organ adds to the, uh, to the work, uh, we're going to listen to the second movement now. This is the um, Adagio from BWV 593 with Tan Koopman at the organ. And I want you to listen again to the, the solo line. What really cool to me in that, um, two things actually, the colors, the the sound world that uh, Koopman takes us to and uh, by extension Bach takes us to, um, the choices there just, it really transports you to a different place I think and that's uh, again one of, the, one of the benefits of going to an organ is it has this ability to, to present to us different colors and, and flavors if you will oral flavors of sound and those those that quietness and intimacy uh, it makes me think I'm going to a, kind of a, a cool cave or something. I know that's the, the reference that I have. The second thing is what Koopman does with the ornamentation. It, to me is very keyboard focused and he does is not shy about ornamenting the line. And again, that's adding something that the keyboard offers to the line and 
Um, of course, if you were to hear this concerto live on the violin, the violinist has that ability. Um, but typically, the recordings that I have don't go as far as Koopman does on this keyboard version, which I really like. I think um, he has been known to be one of those performers who can flourish uh, probably more than others, and I like it, and I, uh, I think it's tastefully done, and uh, I think it adds something to the music. So I'm a fan of that performance. So the last movement, I'm just going to give you a taste of it. Again, we'll listen to Tan Koopman um, performing, and then we'll go to the, the last recording that I want to share with you that uh, is, is special uh, for its own reason, and that's the one that, if you remember, was a little faster, uh, because, uh, caveat, it was not performed on the organ. So Koopman, I gave you the example right after that of the Vivaldi again. That was um, another Vivaldi recording. This is uh, Academia Byzantina. Um, Mr. D'Antoni is the director of that ensemble, and they did a, um, a recording, a two-CD set of Lestor Monaco Opus Three on the Arts label. Um, and you heard that... It's just kind of straight notes, and Koopman uh, embellishes that and makes something really a little bit different out of it, which I thought was kind of cool, um, because just straight notes on the organ probably didn't make as much sense to him, so he he embellished the uh, the line and kept it consistent as he goes through and presents it. So that was Tom Koopman on on the organ previous to the uh, the violin version. Again. Um, I think the the value add in the transcription is well. If you're going to adopt it to a different uh, instrument, you're going to take a whole orchestra. Then then make the most of it. And I think Koopman in his um, recording attempts to do that. 
through ornamentation, through the choices in color and uh, the orchestration of stops on the organ. Um, and that's why I think it's a particularly compelling recording. Um, and I think no matter what, you ought to listen to the Vivaldi versions uh, that you may have available to you as a point of comparison to, to sort of see where Bach started and then what he did. And the big question for me, I, I have no doubt that uh, a musician like Johann Sebastian Bach could read a score and hear the music in his head. Um, I have many friends who can who can do that. Um, so, did he ever perform this on the on the violin parts? That would be an interesting uh, thing to sort of uh, go back in time and visit. I think if we could, if we go in a time machine and uh, see if this was totally an academic thing, uh, or did Bach really need to for any reason, or did he have the the interest uh, in performing this? Um, these works on the original instruments, uh, if you will, at the Zimmerman's Coffee House. We don't know. Um, we don't know if he ever did. And so these, these uh, manuscripts that he leaves us, these arrangements are kind of interesting for that. Speaking of arrangements, the last recording I wanted to uh, share with you uh, takes this concerto and arranges it itself. So an arrangement of an arrangement. And uh, I'm going to give you um, not the entire thing. I'll, I'll play the last movement. And just for timing's sake, as I mentioned before, this is this the first movement in this recording was a full minute faster than the Preston recording. And in the last movement, um, the one we just heard now, two versions of, uh, Preston takes it at 408. And again, He's, uh, I would say, in addition to artistic decision in uh, tempo, there is a pragmatic one. Uh, Koopman takes it at 344, and this version is at 315. So again, this is sort of the speed demon version. And you're going to hear that when it comes on, it's, uh, it's a very different uh, aesthetic. Um, and we'll talk about what you're listening to afterwards. I will leave you in the dark. So this, again, is the third movement of Bach's Concerto for Organ, BWV 593. <laughs> Harpsichord. Uh, this is an arrangement by Skip Sempe and Olivier Fortin. 
Uh, this is it was a release on the Audovis label uh, from 1998. It's entitled Bach, Vivaldi, Concerti, and Preludia. Um, it has a really neat cover of a uh, it's a black cover with some chinoiserie uh, gold uh, type detail from the side of a harpsichord um it's got two guys on horses with uh somebody fanning them it's probably more um arab influenced than than chinese but we call that chinoiserie that sort of uh, oriental uh ornamentation on on the side of a, a harpsichord so the the cover was arresting and the gold color on the album to me perfectly matches the sort of color I have in my mind when I listen to this. This uh, is a recording that I have mentioned many, many times in my reviews. I go back to it as sort of maybe one of the top harpsichord uh, CDs that I have ever heard. It, uh, to me, is outstanding. It is um, a collaboration between these two performers. They have arranged things for two instruments. And what they did is they took Bach's uh, arrangement here of the Vivaldi Concerto and then split it up between two harpsichords. And I think one of the things that you gain compared to the organ versions that we heard, especially when we consider the, the, the one by Marie-Claire Alain, is the clarity, right? This crystal clear clarity of sound that we hear because of the change in instrument. Um, and again, we're not performing this in a church, and we're not recording it from the back of the church. We're, I would assume that the microphones were pretty close to the two instruments. Um, this is one of the, the Bach pieces that you're going to get on this. Um, of course, it was originally Vivaldi. Uh, to me, it's just really fun, over the top. And if you like the sound of a harpsichord, how do you make it better? Well, you get, you get two, right? <laughs> And it's just glittering gold. That's what I see when I well, the finger of the passage work. And um, if you have not heard this recording, I can't I can't make you go buy it, but I can certainly uh, give my warmest recommendation for it. It is an incredible recording. Uh, it's this again one of my favorites of the harpsichord literature. Um, and it's not harpsichord literature. It's it's arranged, and they make something new out of it which I think they could make a compelling case that maybe Bach could have arranged uh, this concerto for two harpsichords rather than an organ. I don't know. I'll stay out of that argument, but I put it out there for you to think about. So Bach uh, arranged a piece here by Antonio Vivaldi. It's one in a set of uh, concerto arrangements. It's probably my favorite of them all. That's why I chose to focus on it. BWV 593. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to some of the comparisons and some of the things that I think are important in listening to this. And that is, um, you know, choices of interpretation, matching tempo articulation for the for the spot you're in, and taking advantage of the instrument uh, that it's been arranged for to to make something significant, to add some value to the work. And I think again, of the three examples I gave you, I like Tom Koopman's the best simply because I think he is exploiting the instrument for what it offers uh, and adds something to the music even beyond uh, what's on the page because uh, he is applying rules of performance practices. He's come to know them uh, to uh, perform these works.
My name is John Hender. I hope you have enjoyed listening to episode number 32 of Bachcast. You can learn more about this episode and you can seek out the other 31 episodes uh, that came before it. If you go to bieberfan.org, that's the website where I review recordings and host Bachcast. That's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening.